You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is two-time elected Marion County Sheriff, former marshal for the federal government, all-around good guy, and Golden Ace in aficionado, Sheriff Frank Anderson. We are joined today by a special co-host, Cecina High School, Class of 71, and the unofficial legal counsel for that same Golden Ace Inn. And that is, I guess I'm unofficial. Am I unofficial PR, Kevin? Yes, you are. Uh, Kevin Murray. <laughs> Kevin Murray, longtime friend of Sheriff Anderson, longtime friend of mine, uh, one of the great Eastsiders I've ever met. He's joining us for a special co-hosting gig to talk about Sheriff Anderson's career and why he seemed to be so unassailable in his time as Marion County Sheriff and his drive for public service. It's really a remarkable career, and we're pleased to have Kevin join us. And with that, Mr. Murray, the floor is yours. Thank you, Robert. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd start out by saying that it has been my honor to serve as counsel uh, to Sheriff Anderson. I, I, I met him uh Previously, uh, when he was marshal, probably an event he doesn't recall, but the, the point is there was a time when uh, a new presidential administration came to town, and uh, being the U.S. marshal is a political appointment. He'd been previously U.S. marshal under President Carter, uh, was serving under President Clinton, and uh, the indication was it was time for him to go and move on, although he had he had been a career U.S. Marshal, although he had started, and I, he'll cover this, I'm sure, in the sheriff's office as a young man coming back from the shore patrol in the Navy. Uh, he, he went pretty quickly from the sheriff's office to the, to the U.S. Marshal's office, so he was a career U.S. Marshal. Uh, at any rate, I, I received a telephone call from uh, Mayor Peterson, who asked to meet with me promptly one day and uh, in January of 2002. And uh, he said that he and Congresswoman Carson wanted to meet with me to discuss something. And uh, this was right after 9-11, September before. And he had an urgency in his voice and it concerned me. And I said, I was at the state house working for uh, Lieutenant Governor Joe Kernan at the time. And uh, I told him I'd be right over to the city county building. He said, no, uh, we can't meet there. Uh, can we meet in your law office? And I said, sure. And so uh, shortly thereafter, I met with him and the congresswoman. The congresswoman said, you don't know why we're here, do you? And I said, no. And she said, we're here to enlist you in the war against terrorism. And uh, I about fell off my chair. And uh, she just laughed at me. She said, no, we're here to ask that you uh, help Frank Anderson run his campaign for Marion County Sheriff. And so that was sort of the formal introduction uh, at, at the behest of the mayor and the congresswoman. And it was just a, an opportunity that I could not uh, resist. I immediately called uh, 
Governor Joe Kearney, uh, then the Lieutenant Governor, and, and told him what the request was. And, and he said, well, Kevin, you have to do this. Frank's a good Navy man like myself, and uh, you ought to be off and running. And so we, we were off and running. Um, that was a whirlwind campaign in 2002. Uh, but during the course of that, I got to know uh, then Marshall, soon to be Sheriff Frank Anderson, very, very well. And, and many, many stories came from that time period. And, and both Sheriff Anderson and I are, are kind of historians like, like you, Robert. Uh, and it's always amazed me how many places he's been, how many people he's touched, uh, and how in some of the really critical times in Indianapolis history, uh, Frank Anderson just happened to be there. Um, one of the stories I'd like him to start with, however, is is back in high school. And uh, he, as he will tell you, he's a proud Shortridge Blue Devil. Hey. And um, he was uh, he was going out for basketball. And uh, the grandfather of our good friend, Judge Eicholtz, uh was the basketball coach, Cleon Reynolds, a, a fairly famous uh, high school basketball coach. And uh, Sheriff Anderson, young Sheriff Anderson and, and Coach Reynolds had a discussion. Sheriff, you want to tell Robert and the listeners what, what happened during the course of that discussion? Yeah, it was a very interesting discussion. Uh, I played uh, in grade school. I was on the starting five. I was always a little guy, too. Uh, when I was in high school, I was four feet 11 and weighed 92 pounds. So I went out to try for the freshman um, uh, basketball team at Chartridge. So we were all standing out in the hall, and the gym was closed, and the wrestling room was right next to the gym. So the coach, uh, uh, Paul Dill, uh, said, uh, come on in, boys, and we all stood around the mat in there and while the uh, wrestling team were practicing. So then... They, uh, he said, well, anybody want to uh, try that? And I said, yeah, I'll try it. So anyway, uh, to make a long story short, um, the guy that I wrestled then, no training did I have of it, he was the varsity man for the wrestling team at Short Ridge. So my mother, uh, she thought I was playing basketball until she read in the Indianapolis Star that I was a city champ in wrestling. Yeah. And she she got concerned. She said, well, uh, no, he's going to get hurt. You know, he's a little guy. He's going to get hurt. And the wrestling coach and the basketball coach and the, the principal came and said, no, he's beating everybody up. So I ended up, I placed third in the state in wrestling that year. And But all that time, she thought I was uh, playing basketball. And it's, uh, it's, it's, one of, it's one of my favorite stories because it just shows what a small community this is. Judge Eicholtz is also uh, very proud of that story. Um, so a after high school, uh, Sheriff Anderson ventured into the Navy where he ended up getting into the shore patrol and having uh, a great experience in law enforcement, which led him back to the Marion County Sheriff's Office ultimately. But during that time, he served uh, in South Carolina. And, and as someone who traveled to the South uh, in the late 50s, uh, I, I came to know as, as, as a very young youngster, uh, the segregation of the South. And by the time the sheriff got there in the early 60s, I, I don't think it had changed much. Would you like to tell folks about some of your experiences while you were in the Navy there in South Carolina? Yeah, it, it was very, very interesting. Uh, I, at the time, I had uh, scholarship offers uh, to uh, go to college, and, and, and my dad was in World War II, and I, that's what made me decide to go uh, and, and join uh, the Navy. And then down in South Carolina, as you indicated, uh, being an African-American, we were only allowed basically to go two blocks where they had the hotels and the bars and all that. And at that time, they had two uh, black uh, police officers, but they could not make arrests. Because well, you've got all these sailors and all that, and you can imagine the activity that was going on after 
having cocktails and all that in the evening, uh, the black uh, police officers could not uh, make arrests. They had to call the white police officers uh, to make arrests. And the, the ship that I was on was only like two blocks away uh, from this area where we were all congregated at. And at the, at the times of going back and walking back and so forth, we were calling a lot of different names and, and what have you. But, you know, it, and then, you know, you get to meet friends, and I think the military has done a lot for people uh, in terms of getting to understand and using your own judgment what you think about a person. I remember that in high noon, when it was time for us to go on leave, I was in the cab with two of my white buddies, and the police officers pulled, me, oh, pulled us over in the middle of the main street and ordered me to get out of the cab and then took the cab driver's license and said, you know, the, the N-word can't be in the car with whites. And so they made me get out right there with my duffel bag and all that. And so it, uh, those were the types of things uh, I ended up uh, all of the buddies that I had, they went all over the world traveling and they kept me down in South Carolina and Charleston to help with race relations uh, back, back in, in those days. And I was, like I said, I was a young man when, uh, when I went there. So uh, needless to say, I didn't uh, continue when it came time to ship over and, and go, you know, uh, I didn't want to ship over. And that's when I came back uh, to Indianapolis. But while, 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 while I was there, I did get my first little hint of law enforcement because I was, did a little stint with the shore patrol, which is like MPs in the military and whatever. But that, that was my ex experience there. And Sheriff, then when you came back to Indianapolis, uh, you did what a lot of folks did during those years. You went into some factory work, became a proud union man, a proud UAW man, and worked at the Chevrolet stamping plant. Uh, yeah. You want to tell folks a little bit about that? Yeah. I, uh, well, prior to that, I had, uh, uh, before, when I got out of the Navy, uh, I, I, I back up a little bit. Uh, they had me down in the bottom of the boat or the ship dipping oil and water out of there and pocket, I'm pouring it out. And so the the uh, guy who was the chief on there, he, 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 I came up out of there, he said, where in the hell are you going? I'm not going to use the language he said, but I said, I can do better for me and for the Navy. I can do better than this. And, and where are you going? And I, I went straight up to the commanding officer's uh, office. And I, uh, the lady asked me, she said, uh, well, I said, I need to speak, speak with the commanding officer. She said, uh, and he must, and I wasn't talking loud or anything, but he overheard the conversation and he opened the door and he said, young man, we're going to help you. I said, sir, I'm not doing the Navy any good and I'm not doing me any good. I said, I can do better and both of us can do better with each other. So he said, well, what do you want to do? Uh, I said, uh, I want to go and do better skill-wise otherwise. He said, well, here's what I'm going to do with you. He did. He took me in there, and he spread all the ranks of the Navy in. He said, if you qualify and you go to school, he said, if you graduate or whatever, I'll put you where you want to go to. And that, that was a, me being sent to Great Lakes. I went to electronic school. And I was the only black in the whole class. It must have been 30 or 40. Uh, I didn't have calculus and geometry and all that. And I had to learn all of this where, where my co-students would go and party. And I had to learn all that. I did graduate in the middle of the class. And then when I left there and now back to Indianapolis and some of the people that I trained I went and put an application in at Allison because I worked on gas turbines and all that kind of stuff. I was the only one on the ship that I was on that knew anything about anything electronic, and we'd be out to sea, and I was the guy. But when I got back here, I tried to apply for a job. I was at Allison's then, 
and they offered me a job as a custodian. And some of the white guys that I trained end up getting the job. So this was the starting of a lot of things that followed my 60 years of career right now. So how long were you at Chevrolet? Well, I was there for a couple of years. And then uh, what what happened there, you know, it was almost the same type of thing to the extent that um, one thing that they had the big press machines, you know, where you had to put a piece of my sheet of metal, which you'd uh, form something. I'm right here by my office here. Anyway, it ended up uh, that I saw a guy get his hand cut off right next to me. And I, again, I did the same thing. I grabbed my toolbox and my goggles and, and started heading out. And the, the, the shop foreman said, where the hell are you going? I said, I can do better than this. I, I, you know, I guess this get to be something that I always said, I can do better than this. And I, I left. And then that's how I, that's what started me uh, to the sheriff's department. And that was an interesting venture too. Well, and I thought one of the interesting things at the sheriff's office was that at, at that time, uh, you weren't the first African-American sheriff in the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Uh, you ultimately become the first Marion County Sheriff deputy uh, who's black, who actually gets to patrol the, the roadways and the streets and the highways within the county. But uh, at that time, um, the African-American deputies were, were jail deputies, basically, and, and you served in that capacity early on. And, and uh, among your friends, as I recall, was uh, Sheriff Jack Cotty's father. Is that correct? Yes, uh, Bud Cotty. He was a, a ranked boxer in the, in the world. He was ranked third or something. And he and I worked side by side. And my recollection is, is that the two of you prevented a jailbreak one day. Yeah. Tell the folks about that. Right. Well, we, uh, it was the old dungeon jail that I, we worked in and, uh, uh, how I ended up in, in there was that when we took the exam for the sheriff's department, the, the sheriff's department hired, I think it was seven deputies and they, put me in the old dungeon jail and they put the six white deputies out in the patrol car. So I stayed, ended up in the jail. And then what happened was the, the prisoners were sawing out of the jail. They, they could see sparks flying because they had left the propane tanks and stuff in there. And we had to take the prisoners out up to the third floor for, um, we put all of them in the a mess hall and then they would go back in, turn the gas on. And so they, we had a little peephole. So Jack, uh, his dad, and I saw that. And so uh, we went, made the rounds, and uh, um, we we found out that they were halfway out of the jail. And uh, that was how we, we prevented it, uh, them from escaping. And so eventually, as I recall, uh, who was the sheriff that... Uh, was sheriff when you actually got out on road patrol, sheriff? Uh, with Lee Ease was Lee Ease was the sheriff uh, that that uh, got put me out uh, on the road patrol. And, and, uh, and I, as I recall the story, you were patrolling the northwest side when uh, people would call in and claim that an African American had stolen the sheriff's car and was driving on the northwest side. Is that is that how that happened? Yeah, but they used a different word. They used the N word. Anyway, driving down the road, and then it got to a point where uh, they said that the N word stole the sheriff's car and he's driving up Michigan Road. But then it got to a point where every time somebody would pass me coming uh, the opposite way, I could hear the brakes almost go on, and I knew what it was. They looked and saw me driving the sheriff's car. So uh, that that got to be a, a routine thing, a regular thing, and it didn't discourage me uh, from doing my job. Well, in the early 60s, uh, you also had two experiences that people here in Indianapolis remember quite well. One of them was a, 
a positive, the other was a negative. Uh, my recollection is that uh, you're on the scene of the Coliseum explosion in 1963. Is, is that correct? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget that. I, uh, um, the dispatcher called me because I didn't live too far uh, from um, the Coliseum and told me, you got to get the hell out of there right away because there's hundreds of people being killed or hurt and all that. And, I, you know, he was a jokester. And I said, oh, man, don't call me. That. He said, oh, I'm not kidding. So when I get there, it was one of the most horrible things that I've ever seen in my life. And being a young man that I was at that particular time, uh, when we got there, there were people coming out bleeding and uh, it was a horrific sight uh, to see. And then it ended up that uh, my partner at that particular time, uh, you know, we had to, what, what it did, the popcorn machine blew up and blew up and created this fire in that whole section and the people dropped down in it and burned them up. And so what we had to do was to go and, and, and get these people to see who was living and still alive and all that. And I'd actually, you know, you grab somebody's arm and the arm would come off of them and they were black, crystal black, where they had been burnt up. And that, that, when my partner at that time, he, he, he was upset, understandably. And he, and these big blocks of concrete had just come down and crushed people. And we were trying to get them out there, and we get them out. And he was really hysterical. He said, I think that's my mother. And I guess the dress and stuff that she had on, you know, it looked just like that. And thank God it wasn't her once we got her out. But then it didn't end there. We 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 had to put people on the ice uh, for the morgue part when they put sheets down and we had to take all these crushed, burn up bodies one by one and put them on uh, these sheets uh, to keep them, you know, cold until you know, later on. And then it ended up that um, we had to take all of their clothing that we could gather and back and, and take it down in the or the morgue or the city county in the van and all these clothes were stacked up in the back of this van. I'll never forget that. And then as we go down into the basement, they have to make a quick stop and all of this stuff comes up over, over top of us. And, uh, and then not, that wasn't the end of it. And then the next day, um, uh, I had to have the morgue duty and, uh, where I had to look at these bodies every, all over. There's hundreds of people would come to try to claim their loved ones and looking at these bodies over and over and over. And, you know, these are things, and, and usually, uh, I guess the, the Lord has blessed me to a point because I've seen a lot of things, but I don't really think about them until, I, unless I'm talking about it, you know. So that uh, that was uh, one of the most horrific uh, things that that I've, I've seen. But um, and it goes on and on. Well, so the the next year, my recollection is, uh, in continuing with the state fair theme, uh, the, the Coliseum hosted the Beatles. Yeah, uh, my recollection is is that you were involved in that detail. You want to tell folks about that opportunity? Yeah, when they were performing there, uh, we had uh, a part of security to, uh, you know, protect them and whatever they need to do or wherever they had to go and be escorted and all of that. And that was obviously uh, an experience uh, uh, to have. And uh, even to the extent that when, uh, especially the people that were really following them, and, young people uh, when they found out that they'd ask you did you see the Beatles yeah I was with the Beatles and then they'd scream and be happy and 
Oh, like, can I touch your hand? She said, you know, can I touch your hand? So, so that, especially the young ladies, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah especially the young ladies. But it was, uh, you know, I've had a lot of things uh, that have happened like that. And it, now I'm in another, uh, later in life, another thing I can, am proud to say that I have personally shook hands with uh, um, four four living presidents. I have personally shook hands with them. Well, we'll, we'll get into that a little later, Sheriff. Okay. Uh, as we transition, though, I, but before you leave the sheriff's office, you work with a, a lot of folks throughout. And one of the things during your tenure here as sheriff, you you did the the wall of honor in the conference room, the memorial to the deputies who were killed in the line of duty. Uh, with portraits on the wall in the conference room uh, honoring them. And in addition, you also had placed commissioned uh, fire, Indianapolis firefighter uh, Ryan Feeney, who ended up doing the uh, Peyton Manning statue as well, but the fallen uh, deputy memorial in front of the Marion County Jail. And one of the things that always impressed me, it, it, it seems like uh, you had a pretty close personal relationship with almost every deputy who was killed in the line of duty. Yeah, uh, you want to just sort of briefly talk about that, Sheriff? Yeah, uh, it uh, you know it was uh, almost uh, something I never forget, never forget it. And the uh, every one of them that have been killed in the line of duty, uh, I knew them, and uh, uh, it, it you know, and, and then as time went by, as the sheriff or what have you. Uh, just to have to be there and to um, putting these flags in the coffins and dealing with the the, the families and, and what have you. Uh, uh, it even got so these 60 years that I have been in, usually any memorial service that I would go to, uh, I would always take that and start checking the names that I know in 60 years, there was a lot of them that I knew. Well, so eventually you were recruited to the U.S. Marshal Service, right. uh, taken into the, the federal government family, so to speak. Uh, and, and you were involved in uh, what I would call the tumultuous 1960s, a, a time of... Uh, a lot of radicalism in the air and whatnot, opposition to the Vietnam War and, and whatnot. Uh, my recollection is that you were involved in uh, the creation of the uh, undercover unit. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I worked undercover um, uh, in several locations, and uh, especially uh, back in that day, that's when my nickname was uh, Bush. Because that, that was back when they had the big afro. <laughs> I, I'd have this big afro, and then I'd have the chains and all of that around my neck. And, you know, uh, uh, we, we me and uh, a couple of other guys, uh, we, we worked undercover. And back during the Vietnam uh, demonstrations, I would uh, we got in the crowd with them. And we were there when they were planning on blowing up a bridge or something. And uh, we were pretty sharp at picking the cops out because we'd blend in. And then uh, we'd go over and be at rallies and whatever. And I'll never forget the director uh, had, I think it was the attorney general, and they were in the car together. And me and this guy, God rest his soul, he worked undercover with me a lot from Arizona. And, and uh, I guess the, uh, the attorney general when he told uh, the, the, the director of the marshal service, said, you see those two guys there? He said, yeah, they're rough-looking guys. And he said, those are two deputies. They're two deputies. <laughs> those are two deputy marshals. And Vance Harkey almost blew my cover because Vance had a lot to do with my life because I'm out there and, and, and when we were having the demonstration and stuff, and I was coming around his truck and – I know if he saw me, he would it would blow my cover. So I could duck and George under dive under a truck and all that. But 
those were uh, some other interesting days to yeah. say the least. Hiding from Senator Vance Hartke in, in Washington, D.C. in the midst of a riot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, another thing that uh, you did during your time there was you were one of the founders of the Federal Witness Protection Program. And, uh, and I know you were involved uh, with mafia witnesses uh, during your tenure. Is there anything you can share with the listeners about that? I know there's some, still some things you can't even talk about, but whatever you can share would be interesting. Well, it was uh, out of uh, 20 of us that were called to Washington. I just happened to be one of the people that was called to Washington to help develop the Federal Witness Protection Program and the Court Security Program. And um, I knew we went to Washington to plan this, this, this new organization. And um, I, we were there two or three weeks to, you know, put it together. And then I remember the, the day that it was graduation time when I went and they called their people's names. So-and-so, so-and-so, you go to room, this and then when I went to the room and opened the door and the director was sitting at the table, I knew I was in the right room, <laughs> you know. But it, it became a point where the, that program is, was, and I was told, uh, it took a lot of weight. My, I'd give my wife and, uh, a lot of credit because I was gone five or six months uh, out of the, the year uh, with this program. My family has been threatened by the mafia to, to kill me and them. Uh, and uh, I never discussed any of these things with my, my family as to uh, what, uh, you know, who these people were, a lot of them. And I've, I've relocated a lot of people here in Indianapolis. And a lot of people think that if they're in the witness protection program, that they did something bad. No, it's not that way. They may have seen something uh, as a witness. And that meant, uh, and my neighbor's, were really confused because one day you might see me with a white lady in the car and kids, and then the next day I'll be with a black lady, and then the next day I'll be with all kind of ladies uh, that you would think are ladies of fun ladies, you know, for lack of better. We're like, what the hell is he doing? And so, but it was my job to have these people removed and to uh, change their location and, and redocument them and all that. And uh, I've had some pretty famous uh, uh, people that, uh, that have been here in the city that, uh, uh, that I, I'll never forget of, you know. But it, uh, it, me and I wore, <laughs> I wore, a, I had this big bush again, and I wore a long leather jacket. The coat. I wear a long leather coat that goes all the way down his shoe, like shaft. Of course, I would be like that. <laughs> and so they called me one time. I just got back in town because, like I said, I was going to uh, maybe a month or two at a time. And they were had a, a up in Milwaukee. They had thirty prostitutes that they were going, and they took their, their pimps off 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 the uh, street. So they they said uh, they sent called me and I had just gotten back home, so I had to go to Milwaukee. I was trying to go uh, to Milwaukee. They said we need you to come up here right away. We got thirty prostitutes camped there. So here I come with this big afro and this long trench coat, on, and they said he's here, and everybody looking at each other, you know, like well, you know. Well, who, this, he's who? So I had to get all these people that had children, they were drug addicts, and had all kinds of problems, and I had to move them across the country to different uh, places. And it's uh, that, uh, that's just a part of it. Right. Well, another thing while you were in the Marshal Service I, I, that I thought was very interesting, there's an iconic uh, painting by Norman Rockwell uh, of a young African-American girl uh, integrating a school. And all you see is she's surrounded by U.S. Marshals. And uh, you don't see the heads of the Marshals, but you see the, 
the armbands of the U.S. Marshals, and you see graffiti on the wall with the N-word and all kinds of other things. But right. you, you have a personal relationship with that young lady. Would you like to talk to the, the listeners about Ruby Bridges? Yeah, Ruby Bridges, I met her. In fact, I met her at the White House. And um, we became uh, like brother and sister of Sark um, uh, to the extent. And in fact, uh, her, her program that she has gone travels all over the world, in fact. And she uh, she stays here in my house uh, for years. Uh, we are with her. When we go down to New Orleans, uh, uh, we're just basically like like family. And uh, she is somebody that I dearly respect. And uh, and the things that she has been through, uh, when they named the school after her and all that, my wife and I, and when they had the Mardi Gras, we'd go down there and be with the, the mayor and all that. And so it's been a good relationship that we have with, with Ruby. And I, I was honored to meet with you all up at the Children's Museum when they opened the uh, exhibit and uh, dedicated to children in stress and under stress and the, the, the Anne Frank exhibit, the Ryan White exhibit, and of course yeah. uh, Ruby Bridges is the only living child hero who, uh, who they celebrate there. But that was, uh, that was very, very special. So during, during the Carter administration, you were actually appointed to be the, the U.S. Marshal. Would you would you like to tell folks about that process? Yeah, it was uh, uh, one that um, uh, that I always remember. I think that was in '77 uh, when I uh, was sworn in, August the first, uh, 1977. You know why I remember that day? The reason I remember that, that's the day I quit smoking. I was smoking two pack of cigarettes a day, and that's the day, uh, August the 1st, 1977, that's the day I quit smoking. So I'll never forget that. But uh, that um, uh, that was uh, quite a, um, a step and change in, in my life. I... Um, um, I had had worked my way up through these other things, the witness security program, and another part of the thing before that was the fact uh, with the uh, special operations group. I don't know if uh, this, that's the, the Marshal Services Task Force. Uh, I was a squad leader in that. We trained on the Mexican border. We wore the blue jumpsuits and the helmets and all that, and I was a squad leader in that. Uh, and the, the organizations is that uh, places like Wounded Knee, uh, and then the same thing was when we were at uh, the, the Pentagon. Uh, uh, that was quite a, quite a, an adventure to be there. And we had several guys that got hurt in that because there was a lot of confrontation that we had. It, sometimes it makes me wonder about when the director, we, we were up in Minnesota, we were, uh, some people had barricaded themselves in a movie theater with the big projector screen where we, and I, the director tells me, Anderson, take your squad going. I had to chop through the side of the theater and go in there. We had to go in there and have a try to uh, contain them. And so those are the types of things that uh, uh, we we had to deal deal with. But after you were the U.S. Marshal during again a, a political appointment, there was a time period when you had to step away, and uh, you became the the director of the Federal Protective Service, largely for the Midwest. Do you want to explain to folks what that job entailed, Chair? Yeah, it uh, it was a uh, as the district director of the Federal Protection Service, uh, which is now Homeland Security. Uh, my office was right next to the uh, FBI uh, here in Indianapolis, uh, and I was over uh, basically Indiana, Illinois, uh, Michigan, and uh, uh, those areas. All of the uniformed police officers, all of the detectives, uh, all of them uh, worked for me in those uh, areas. Uh, back then, I was one of the people that helped change 
uh, uh, the jurisdiction, the laws back then, just like in the U.S. courthouse here, uh, the IMPD or the city police could not go in there. They did not have authority to go in there. So it was up to the Federal Protective Service. So I helped to change over the uh, concurrent jurisdiction uh, for uh, that organization where the local police uh, could uh, go in and make arrests and all that. Uh, it was so, as an example, uh, up in the senator's office up in Fort Wayne, uh, because the local police up there, they have a group of people camped in the, one of the senator's offices up, up there, and I had to drive red light and siren from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne uh, to uh, get those people out of there with the people that I brought with that are federal protected. And it turned out to be an interesting thing uh, because a newspaper had it and they were, it was almost a laughable thing because they were uh, talking about how I tricked them out of the building without any confrontations or whatever. I went in there and identified myself. I, I didn't have that big afro stuff then, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I went in and I told him, I said, you're in violation of federal law, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I said, you're, you're going to have to leave. And I, I opened up the, the office door where in the senator's office. I said, uh, the, are the buses out there? And they said, yes, sir. They're, they're out here. And I said, finally, I said, uh, everybody follow me. And that's the true story. So we go down the hallway and go all the way down to the front door. And I hollered again. I said, the bus is out there. And they said, yes, sir. And I opened the door and they all went out and I closed the door behind them. And so, but the, the other part of it was I had to come back to Indianapolis. It was about two or three in the morning. So we used to go to this restaurant and there are a lot of these people in there. We went in there to have coffee, and they're all in there. And the, the officers said, are we going to go? I said, yeah, we're going there. And I went in, and they said, they start pointing at me, and they were laughing and doing and, and And I said, you know, nobody got hurt, you know. And the newspaper wrote it up. I tricked them out, out of there without any confrontation. And I guess that's has been something that's a part of my life uh, to do something peacefully. Well, one of the one of the uh, old adages that I hear you employ from time to time is that uh, you don't do a job with a jackhammer; we can get that job done with a screwdriver. Yes, exactly. Right. You, uh, you learned that early, and you practice that often, and that sort of foreshadows probably the end of this discussion, which will be the Baptist Temple and Timothy McVeigh, but. I'd like to go back to your, your point about smoking. It's, that's one of the things I, I've really admired about you, Sheriff, over the years is that you're, you're a zealous uh, former uh, smoker and uh, anti-smoker in that regard. Yeah. In your tenure here as the Sheriff for your eight years, you did a lot to help with tobacco secession. And yeah. um, I, I think that uh, you know that's quite a legacy, and it is something that you, you, uh, you work with people on that. Uh, every time you see a smoker, you talk to them, and uh, it's a heartfelt approach you've had. In 2001, uh, you were uh, you won the Martin J. Burke Award as the most outstanding marshal in the country. Your office was selected as uh, the most outstanding marshal's office in the country, uh, right. and you had quite a successful year in 2001. Uh, that, that obviously was during the Clinton years. Uh, is there anything that, that you want to share with folks about your service uh, under President Clinton in particular? No, other than the fact I tried to just be the same way. And uh, I always reverted back uh, when dealing with things. And, you know, what's going on even today reminds me of something that uh, my mother and father taught me because a lot of times, even through my career, People ask me about my position on this and that and what have you. And my mother always, uh, I, I, these remarks that I'm telling you now, you can see how I ended up being that way. 
my mother always used reverse psychology on me. She'd always tell me, well, you can't do that. You know, don't tell me I can't do something. And that's just going to make me do it. And, uh, you know, uh, my dad told me the first time I raised my hand, uh, he said, I want you to remember something. He said, um, if the law says this, you enforce the law. He said, even if it's me, he said. And it ended up, uh, I took heed to what he said because I locked my uncle up. And uh, I was out in the police car, and I heard my uncle's name. So I, I, I said, uh, told the dispatcher, I said, uh, I, I, I'll find him. And I did. I went and found him and, and went through the drill. And he thought I was playing, but, I, you know, when you had no competition, put your hands on the car, he knew the drill. And I, I locked him up. But it's uh, all of the places and things that, that I have done, uh, I think that the most important thing that I can say in the middle of this is that, you know, I wasn't always, I never tried to be the, the first African-American um, uh, to do something. I always tried to do my best and, uh, to compete for positions that, that were available. In every position that I achieved, uh, I never, never forgot the struggle that somebody went before me to open the door to allow me to step in. And that's been my goal and and, and, and basically in life to the extent that my goals throughout uh, my my life and careers was uh, to use my God-given abilities and experiences uh, to make my communities and, and my country and the world a better place for all of us to live with each other. So... I kept that, and uh, I always felt with all the things going on about the shootings and this and that. Uh, I, I, I think it goes back to what Kevin was just saying about the jackhammer and the screwdriver. I've had opportunities lawfully to do and to shoot or whatever, but I would always rather track, chase somebody physically, catch them, and I could always stand my ground. And we wouldn't be talking about those types of things. Well, I think that the the iconic moment for you, for most of the people in the community, relates to the seizure of the Baptist Temple. Yeah. And the classic is an example of what, what you've talked about. It was sort of the culmination of your entire professional life. And I think that the fact that uh, you were enforcing an order issued by Judge Servans Barker, who... Uh, not not only was your judge on that case, but I would say a, a, a dear personal friend. Uh, hey, obviously, a, a thorny situation the first time in the history of America that the federal government seized a, a church. Uh, you, you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, Reverend Dixon and his son uh, yeah. and, and how all that came about? Right. It was... During that, and the, the media was giving me a, a hard time to the extent, because uh, I, one of the, I don't want to call the name of it, but that sent me a thing. You got a job to do. You got a court order. Why don't you go in there and do this and that and whatever? And it goes back to the same thing, the jackhammer, the screwdriver, and the same thing I talked about, you know, using less force for doing things. And uh, it, it, it ended up that I met several times with the, the, the Dixons. They'd come to their office and with their attorneys, and I'd meet in my, um, my staff office, and we would talk and, and whatever. And I basically would say each time, well, uh, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come. And, and we, we were going to have to do this thing. And, and then it got to a point that when when it, it came time to do that, is when I went in and uh, kneeled next to the pastor when he was praying. And I just, I said, Pastor, we got to go. We got to go. I told you I would be here. And uh, we rolled them out on the gurney and all that. And, and I met with all those marshals that were sent from across the country um, uh, to uh, tell them, I don't want to see any hollering. 
I don't want to see any guns drawn. I don't want to. And I told them what I expected. And so it, that's how it, 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 it all ended that way. And then after that, um, they came to me back when I became uh, the sheriff and said, Dixon, going to speak with you. And I said, well, it's a set of men. And then they came in and they, they, the pastor said, he said, I, I mean, he was in his seventies or something. Dan, he said, I just wanted to know that I respect you. I love you. And before I die, you know, can we pray? And so that's where I prayed with him. And those are the things that I see people that used to belong to the church and they would thank me. The attorney general of the United States called me the next day. I think we were at a ball game or whatever, and they kept telling me, Attorney General Ashcroft wants to talk to you. I thought they were playing or whatever, but he said, the nation owes you a thank that we didn't have another Waco. Because there were people, it was six, 60 or 90 days that I was patient enough to, to talk to them and to deal, deal with it. Uh, because uh, I've always used the same trend of thought. If the law says something, I have to enforce the law and follow the law. And again, it goes back to the screwdriver and the jackhammer. You don't have to to do that. And, and I'm really uh, watching a lot of things that's going on in our society today that kind of bothers me and uh, uh, that um, I, I, I could never see myself being in those types of things that, that a lot of them that are happening today. There's another way to do things. Well, Sheriff, one of your other maxims Maxims is the, the what you call the, the five P's: proper planning prevents poor performance. And I think that the, your handling of the Baptist Temple uh, seizure in accord with the court order it was a classic example of that. Short, shortly after you, you did that, then you had another job to do for the federal government, and you had to handle the execution of the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh and right. Terre Haute at the, in the federal death chamber. And uh, his his conversation with you before you executed him, I always thought was just was chilling. It, it, could you share that with us, please? Yes, you know when uh, when I first met him, when we were in the um, execution chamber, um, the warden introduced me to him, and he said, Frank. Jay Anderson, United States Marshal, said, you're a good man. I'd hate to see you retired. And that was something that really stuck with me. And then, of course, he uh, he finally he asked for uh, a priest. And uh, I got him, got him a, a priest uh, to give him his final rights and so forth. It was... Uh, a very, very, very sobering thing, and a lot of people don't know how their execution goes. They, they just think, you see in the movies, you stretch your arms out and they IV you, but it, it doesn't go that way. They do uh, go in a different area, to, you know, in the leg or whatever, but that, uh, he, the, the drugs that they give him there's like three different ones. And he was having a hard time um, for it to get the flow. And so um, he asked for a cigarette and uh, we managed to give him uh, a cigarette. And then he asked me, um, he said, uh, where is, there's like four windows in there and nobody in the death chamber but me, him and the warden. And then uh, when when uh, I had to do the phone thing, uh, I talked to the um, attorney general's office uh, to see if there's any legal or civil reason why we should not proceed with this execution. And uh, they gave me the okay uh, to do it. But 
when the thing wasn't flowing right, uh, I tried to, it was difficult to the extent that I, I know this is difficult, but I, you know, you, you're going to have to relax the best you can. It's a hard thing to say. So I tried to, you know, to calm him. And then he asked me, he said, where do these rooms go to? He said, which, he said, which camera goes to Oklahoma City? And I said, that one, I pointed to it. And he, um, um, he, there were government officials, his witnesses, and, and uh, four windows. And then when we finally uh, got everything uh, hooked up right and all that, uh, uh, the rest of it, you know, will speak for itself. And then we had to do certain things to uh, show that he wasn't beaten or all the kinds of different things we had to have proof of that, you know. But, um, Sheriff, my recollection is is that one point he, he, he referenced the Baptist temple and, and acknowledged that uh, it, it, it wasn't a Waco, as you said, and then said yeah. something to the effect that if you'd been at Waco, there wouldn't have been a Waco. Yeah. If there hadn't been a Waco, there wouldn't have been an Oklahoma City. Right, right. And uh, just to show the power of one man. Yeah, well, it's uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, that come back to me, you know, when, when we talk about them. But uh, I, I do what I have to do, and then I move on to see what's next, you know. Well, Shortly after that, you you moved on. You were elected sheriff of Marion County in November of uh, 2002, uh, getting almost 70% of the vote uh, in a year where no Democrat, other Democrat won countywide. Uh, you, were, you were popularly elected and immediately uh, took over responsibility for the federal litigation involving the Marion County Jail, which had been on file for 30 years yeah. and uh, Judge Sarah Barker was kind enough to swear you in as the new yeah. Marion County Sheriff. And then um, shortly thereafter, he, she held you in contempt of court because yeah. of terrible conditions within the Marion County Jail. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your personal relationship with uh, Judge Sarah Barker? Well, Judge Barker and I came up through the ranks uh, together back when I was... Uh, just a deputy, deputy marshal, and she was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And um, all of those uh, years, you know, we watched each other do what they had to do. And I, I and I take my hat off to her. I mean, she, uh, we, we're, we're along the same lines of thought that if you've got a responsibility, you got to do it. You can't allow your personal feelings to get in and as respectful as we had for each other, she did her job. And, uh, and of course, that's what she's supposed to do. And I did my job. Uh, that's what I, I, I believed in and had to do. And uh, um, we, I was very proud to um, have gotten that federal lawsuit um, uh, off of the, 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 the office of sheriff. But I meant one other thing back to the execution. Uh, I was in two other death chambers. I had to execute another man besides McVeigh. That's the second man that I had to execute federal-wise. And then the warden up at uh, uh, Michigan City asked me to be in the death chamber uh, with him when he had to execute uh, a man. So it's... It's just bang, 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 you know. It was uh, a lot of emotions involved. Sheriff Anderson, we ask the same five questions of all of our guests at the end of the podcast. Are you ready? Yes. What was your first job? My first job? Oh, I had to stop and think about it because I went straight in the military and then it would have been uh, uh, at the Chevrolet plant. What was your first concert? 
Uh, I was too busy to go to concert. <laughs> Number three. Uh, it'd be tough to beat Greg Ballard's first concert, which was Sly and the Family Stone at Indiana University. Uh, we've, had, we've had some other good ones. The Beatles, uh, Rolling Stones, um, lots of them. Yeah. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? The Bible. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Where everybody's peaceful and getting along. That that would be a celebration. And I write a lot of poetry, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to read it. A last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? My children. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Sheriff Frank Anderson, a man who has, in more ways than one, witnessed history and made history. Thank you very much to our friend Kevin Murray for co-hosting the podcast. And Sheriff Anderson, it's wonderful to see you. Likewise. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.